0: Good morning, everyone. Good morning. I'm glad you're here. We're going to pass the peace. And what that means is, is that you go around to the people around you, and you stick your hand out, and you shake their hand, and you say, the peace of the Lord be with you, or peace to you, or peace, or whatever you need to say. Let me tell you where this came from. Uh, since the beginning of the church, churches were usually small, and uh, people were like a village, you know? And everybody knew each other's trash. And uh, would do harm to each other, you know, in normal sort of neighborly ways. And then they'd have to come and share in the body and the blood of Jesus, the bread and the cup, the one cup, and say, hey, we're all one. So they would say, well, we better forgive each other before we come and do that. And so that's really where it came from. It's called reconciliation. And since we're not a village, that's kind of hard for us to understand in our culture. But let me propose this. It's a political year. And you don't know what everybody in the room, you know, how they'd vote and so forth, you know, but Lakeland, what we can best tell is about 50-50. So this is good. Gives us this pass the peace thing, some reason. So how about we just say this? We're all common in Jesus and we're just saying like, you know what? Politics, schmolitics, you know, just pass the peace and it's all good, Yeah. And that's kind of what we're doing. So, you know, introduce yourself, say Pat, say peace, and say, hi, my name's Dan, you know, and um, kind of focus on their eyes and get their name down. And if you're an introvert, then, you know, just tolerate the whole thing, okay? <laughs> All right, peace the Lord be with you guys. All right, we've been digging through Paul, and particularly we've been looking at Paul's little letter to the church in Philippi in Asia Minor back in the first century. It's called uh, Philippians, but we take a shift And we're going to shift over to a rather large city where there was a new church called Corinth. And Corinth is in Greece, and uh, it was quite the seaport. Um, Just a little bit of trivia. Uh, Corinth was an isthmus. In other words, it was a passage. It was 26 miles long, and they would drag boats from one sea over this 26 miles up a mountain, basically, and over to the other sea. So um needless to say, there were a lot of sailors in Corinth. You should be reading, this was a seaport of sort of a arr, pirate sort of a place, of course, if you can think about that in the first century. It was a rough place, okay? And Paul had planted a church there. Maybe even, my hunch is, a little bit more of a messier crowd in Corinth. Just my hunch. Let's dig into it. If you, uh, we'll put the text up on the screen, the Bible text on the screen, the Bible on the, up on the screen. But if you want to pull it up on your phone for future reference or open up your Bible, we're in Second Corinthians, not First Corinthians. Second Corinthians, chapter twelve, verses one through ten. Second Corinthians ten. This is Paul writing. It's necessary to boast. Nothing needs to be gained by it. But I'll go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a person in Christ, he's, by the way, speaking of himself here. I know a person in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that such a person, whether in the body or out of the body, I do do not know. God knows. Was caught up into paradise and heard things that are not to be told, that no mortal is permitted to repeat. Verse 5. On behalf of such a one, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast, except in my weaknesses. But if I wish to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think better of me than what is seen in me or heard from me, even considering the exceptional character of the revelations. Therefore, to keep me from being too elated, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I appealed to the Lord about this, that it would leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. So I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities for the sake of Christ. For whenever I am weak, then I am strong. Back in Paul and Jesus' time around Greece and Rome, there was a very common uh, legend in Greek mythology. It was the legend of the Greek inventor Daedalus. And perhaps you don't remember the name, but you'll probably remember the legend. The legend goes is that he was invited to, to the island of Crete by King Minos. King Minos wanted uh, Daedalus to build wonderful things, particularly he built this awesome labyrinth, which was somehow sort of magical. But Daedalus had been in Crete for many, many years, and he wanted to go home, back to Greece. But King Minos would not let him leave and put him in a tower. Uh, Daedalus had a son with him, uh, Icarus. So Daedalus, using his wonderful, inventive, creative powers and skills, decided to attach bird feathers to his arms and his shoulders using wax and do the same for his son, Icarus. So it worked, and off they flew to Greece, except that Icarus' son got so excited about his ability to fly that he flew higher and higher up towards the sun. And guess what? The sun melted the wax, and off the feathers came. And Daedalus' son Icarus fell into the ocean, into the sea, and drowned and died. Now, any child growing up in Paul's time in the Roman Empire knew this Greek legend. And the moral was very simple. Don't get too big on yourself. Don't get a big head. Don't do anything too, too crazy out there. Don't think yourself so important lest ye fall. You fly too close to the sun, it doesn't turn out too good. You'll pay a price. This is part of the culture, this Greek myth in the Roman times, there in the first century. And Paul's letter to the church in Corinth has this sort of curious connection, this sort of idea That people shouldn't get too big because in this letter, there's something wrong. It's actually Paul's third letter. We have the first letter in the New Testament. The second letter, we don't have. But somewhere in that second letter that we don't have, even though this letter is called 2 Corinthians, it's really 3 Corinthians, we don't have that letter, but somehow a problem came up. We do not know what the problem was in Corinth. But we can begin to make some guesses if you read the entire letter. It feels like you came in on the second half of a conversation because that's what you're getting because you don't have that middle letter. And my hunch is, is that some corrupt teaching teachers had come into Corinth and were flying high, too close to the sun. And they came in and they were messing up the Corinthians' faith, their simple new faith in the Lord Jesus' And moreover, they were accusing Paul of getting a big head, that Paul somehow thought he was all that, that he was Mr. Cool, very spectacular, full of all sorts of wonderful, you know, visions and miracles. And these, these false teachers were coming into Corinth and saying, like, you want to hear visions and miracles? We've got visions and miracles. We've got signs and wonders. We've got prophecy. We've got 40-day fast. We've got all sorts of stuff coming at you. And they were telling wild tales about what the Lord was doing to them, making themselves look big and flying high to the sun. Maybe they ridiculed Paul and derided him since he wasn't there. Maybe they just said he'd gotten too arrogant, too big for his britches. And maybe this is the tactic that they were using against Paul. He's wrong because he thinks he's all that. So Paul counters this attack with a very interesting strategy. He says, That's right. I'm a nobody. I don't have anything going. I'm not I'm not anything to look at. I'm the least of all the apostles. I become dirt poor. I'm the dregs of the world for Christ's sake. For your sake, Corinthians. Here's my big boast, Paul says. I've been thrown into prison, flogged nearly to death countless times. I've been whipped by my own people, the Jews. I've been beaten with rods. I've been stoned and left for dead. Three times I've been shipwrecked, bobbing in the Mediterranean Sea in the dark. I've traveled hundreds and hundreds of miles through rivers, highways, robbers, uh, wilderness, charlatans, hucksters. I've had to work my knuckles to the bone for food just to eat. I've been cold, hungry, and naked. And not only that, I have all of you new churches to worry about and care for and pray for. So, yeah, you guys are right. I'm not anything, Paul says. So that's his spiritual pedigree. He says, now, just because maybe these other false teachers have been telling you about all their crazy visions they're having, I know a guy, me, Paul says, and he had a vision. But here's my vision, he says, I'm not going to talk about it too much. You can kind of tell him, hear him saying that. I'm not going to talk about it, but, but here's my vision. My vision is, is this. I saw this heaven, this third heaven, and I can't even tell you about it. It's so spectacular. <laughs> but I did hear this in my great vision. I heard that I was a nobody. That I had a thorn in the flesh. And it was given to me by Satan. And so I took it to God in my vision. And God said, I asked him three times, take away my thorn in the flesh. And three times God said no. Three times. That's my vision. And instead, God came back and said, my grace is sufficient for you. My, my power, my power is made perfect in your weakness. And so Paul's saying in his vision, my thorn in the flesh is actually my gift from God. My thorn in the flesh is actually my gift from God. Now, we don't know what Paul's thorn in the flesh was, but that's his claim to fame in his vision. That he asked God for something and it didn't happen. It didn't get taken away. We don't know what his problem was. Maybe somehow Paul was lame, like he couldn't walk, or he maybe he had arthritis. Maybe he had migraines. Scholars really don't know. We do know that Paul had bad eyesight, like he couldn't see up close. And so scholars tend to think, well, maybe that was his thorn in the flesh, that, like he didn't write any of his own letters. He had a, a secretary do most of it, or somebody like Timothy or Luke or somebody like that. So maybe that's what it was, is that he couldn't see very well. Now, um, they, the Corinthians were really quick to say in their attack on Paul that, you know, really, Paul's not much to look at. He's not a looker. So I, I'm just going to afflict you with my constant, lifelong image of what I've always thought the Apostle Paul looks like. It's not Brad Pitt, and it's not Chris Pratt. I, I've always, I'm just telling you the honest truth. I didn't make this up. I've always thought Paul looked like Marty Feldman. You know, Igor from young Frankenstein. You know who I'm talking about? That's him. That's who I've always thought, Paul. I'm not kidding. That's what I've always thought he looked like. He looked like Marty Feldman. Maybe that was his thorn in the flesh. Bad eyesight. But Paul thought that the thorn was a gift. And this thorn kept him from thinking that he was an important person or that he was a powerful person. Paul's thorn kept him from being all puffed up and proud and conceited, too elated, as the New Revised Standard translates it. This thorn from Satan is now a personal gift. And so I'm asking you, what's your thorn? What's your thorn in the flesh? What's the thing that you've had for maybe years? Maybe it is arthritis. Maybe you've had bad eyesight. Maybe it's the thing for all of us who go to counselors. Maybe it's depression. Maybe it's anxiety. Maybe you have diabetes. Maybe you have Crohn's. I I don't know. But what's your thorn in the flesh? Because it very well could be a gift that leads you to the foot of the cross and to God. It may be your spiritual pathway. Because if Paul has anything to say about it, it's actually going to take you to Jesus. It's going to take you to Jesus. So Paul asked God to take this thorn away three times, and it remains. This divine message comes from God, from the Lord, and the spectacular message, and it just says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. That's how Paul operates in life. My weaknesses are my strength. I propose that one of the greatest dangers to Christianity since the beginning is power. One of the greatest dangers to Christianity is power. I think that's a fill-in-the-blank thing. Every time the church has been lured by power, it goes bad, it goes really bad in the church. Whether it's political power during the last two millenniums scattered across Europe or military power resulting in the Crusades, around 900 to 1100 A.D. Not the crown, but it's the cross, everyone. It's not the crown, it's the cross. It's not a fist clenching golden riches. It's a nail-scarred open palm on a cross. That's what Paul's saying. Our symbol is a cross, not a crown. Both money and politics make excellent servants, but terrifying masters. And I don't think these days we do a very good job with either money or politics. But that's just my opinion. You see, it's this will to power that destroys us and destroys the church. So let me attempt to kind of break this whole power thing down here. Power always seeks order. So this is a little bit of a logical sequence here. Power always seeks order. In other words, it wants perfection, okay? Power seeks order. Power always seeks perfection. Power wants a perfect world, okay? Power wants a perfect world. The first mistake is thinking that there can be perfection. Perfection is the enemy of good. So we can quickly see that good-hearted, moralistic Christians can get seduced to power by trying to create a morally perfect world. Case in point, in the 1980s, Reverend Jerry Falwell started the Moral Majority, called it the Moral Majority. And the idea behind the Moral Majority is that the silent Moral Majority in America was Christian and it was going to return America back to its Christian moral origins. The first assumption is that America was Christian. That was his first assumption, which I personally believe was a mistake. The strategy that they came up with in the moral majority was this. I'll tell you how we'll return the nation to Christian morals and become a moral nation. We'll do it by putting Christians in political offices and we'll turn the nation around from the inside out. That was the strategy of the moral majority. The problem is, is they weren't counting on the um, political gamesmanship Soon taking over the moral agenda. And by the way, the moral majority's agenda was originally uh, found its firepower in the Roe v. Wade decision of 1973 on the constitutional right to abortion. That's what they thought was the great moral failure uh, at their time. And you can actually follow the same exact script going on today with homosexuality and gay marriage. Okay? It's following the same exact script. The political gamesmanship crowded out the moral agenda. And as a result, then Christians at the time were viewed as powerful, uh, power grabbing, hateful, anti women people, not moral. So interesting that they were on a moral crusade and they actually were now viewed as immoral, as not moral. And that's why you can find the same exact script going on with the gay marriage uh, debate these days. Christians. Well-intentioned in their moral agenda nowadays are not viewed as loving, not virtuous, not moral at all, even though they're trying to achieve a moral agenda by being against gay marriage, certain Christians, of course. Because the country has a secular moral itself that is rooted in democracy and is viewed as a constitutional constitutional inalienable right given to all men and women, and that is freedom personal freedom. And personal freedom is the secular moral agenda of the day. And so what you have is a quarrel going on between two moral agendas. When Christianity begins to seek power and perfection and a perfect world, it begins to unravel. And that's what I'm trying to build this case here for. Perfection has to use power to get its way because perfection will corrupt you so interesting. Perfection will corrupt you. Moral idealism demands perfection. And you can kind of see on your little handout here, I have these four uh, words here. Moral idealism, then there ought to be an arrow, leads to perfection. And then an arrow leads to power. And then an arrow leads to violence. That's the sequence of the argument. Now, just so you can relate to this, I think most of us have tried this perfect world at home, haven't we? We've all tried to create the perfect household. We're going to have a perfect home. Everything is going to be perfect here at home. Namely, what we're going to create here, everyone, in the house, is we're going to create a clutter-free household, a household that's perfect because everyone picks up their socks and puts away their toys or returns the remote controls to that common, well-known, designated location where all remotes belong not stuck in the couch cushions where no one can find them how's that going for you your morally perfect world at home how is that going how is perfection working for you the script is always the same first of all first off to have a morally perfect home you have the family meeting this usually takes place on a sunday night or perhaps even a monday night and mom and dad walk in with two stone tablets to the kitchen table where the family has been assembled and the pillar of fire. Thou shalt not leave thy socks lying upon the living room floor. Thou should not leave less than a quarter inch of chocolate milk in the jug and then return said jug to the refrigerator. Thou should not leave three Cheerios left in the Cheerio box and call it a full box, for it is not. Thou shall rinse thy dirty dishes and place them in the dishwasher. The holy dishwasher. Instead of leaving them sitting everywhere. And of course, the unruly Philistines in your house do none of these things. They disobey. And so what do you do? You follow the script. Power up. It's time to power up. The authorities take over. Screen privileges are revoked. Phones are placed in. Time out. Curfews are put in place. The masses then begin their strategy. They revolt. (laughs) Voices are raised. Threats ensue. Eyes begin to roll. Snapchat becomes profane. Parenting books are thrown in the trash can. Dogs run and hide. Cats snicker. (laughs) Doors slam. Anyone leaving an empty glass on the kitchen table unfilled is shot on sight. Children melt down, moms cry, and dads pretend to Google something. (laughs) So I'm told. (laughs) Dreams of moral perfection always lead to power, and power turns to violence and destroys. The script is the same, whether it's at home or whether it's in national national politics. Into the cycle of idealism, moralism, power, and violence comes the model of the cross as Paul understood it. My grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. And that's why, Mom and Dad, you eventually just pick up the socks yourself. (laughs) And then say to yourself silently in your grinding of your teeth, someday, when I go over to their house and they have their own place and their own kids, I'm leaving my socks in the middle of the floor. (laughs) That's all you get, man. That's it. That's your only revenge in life. Lord, may you bless them with children. See, Paul says your satanic affliction is actually your gift. Your weakness is actually your gift. It's your way. It's your via. It's your way to God. I remember listening years ago to a friend uh, who this mom, uh, this lovely lady, had a Down syndrome daughter. And when she was talking, the daughter was like second, third grade. Now, this family, they were awesome people in Kansas City. Who's who of Christianity in Kansas City? Awesome leaders got called on to speak various places. They were somebody. They were achievers. They were high achievers. They got stuff done. Everyone looked up to this man and this woman. And then they, they had this Down syndrome daughter. And this mom said, it was the best thing that ever happened to her and she wouldn't wish it on her worst enemy. It was the best thing that ever happened to her because it took her to the feet of Jesus. It slowed her down. Suddenly, all of the achievement and everything that she thought was important in the Christian life didn't matter anymore. Pretty much everything that she thought was important in life was no longer important. Pretty much everything was not important because this child had taught her to slow down and made her weak. Was it a thorn in the flesh? It was your gift of God. Weakness, everyone, makes us spiritual. Slowness shows us an intimate God. Prayer is a smoldering bed of coals, not a triumphant, victorious, magical wand. Prayer is a bed of coals, not a magic wand. Love pays attention. This is the soul of Christianity. For our sake, for our sake, God. God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Do you get the model? The model is God comes looking for us, God pays attention to us, God takes the great journey downward, the great descent. This is the model. Don't you know, didn't someone tell you that God is searching for you? Nowhere in the Gospels does anyone ever take up a search for God. God always comes to them. Those who pay attention respond to God's search. Those who are looking, whether they're blind on the side of the road or bleeding for years and years and hemorrhaging, those who just say, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, if I can just cry out, maybe the God who's come to me will pay attention as I'm paying attention. See, Jesus is calling, is tenderly calling, calling to you and to me, come home. This is the God who comes to us. Over the years, I suppose um, I could be called now a spirituality expert. Of course, we all know what an expert is. An expert is somebody who knows more and more about less and less until they know absolutely everything about nothing, and that's pretty much where I'm at. <laughs> what I've really realized in becoming a spiritual expert is how much I fall short of being spiritual. Spiritual. My paying attention has taught me this. I could have gone on in life thinking I'm just great, everything's fine. Me and Jesus, we're cool, it's all good. I like the Bible, it makes me kind of sleepy, but I'm good. But instead, the pursuit, the paying attention, has taught me that I am nothing. And my weakness is my greatest strength. Spirituality is about learning to pay attention. The key is to train oneself to listen for the master's voice. Pay attention. Love pays attention. In other words, to pay attention, one must be free from the wish dream of a quick fix. And this has greatly invaded the church these days. We are so caught up with power. We are so caught up with exuberance. We're so caught up with a feeling that some days when we do quiet, meditative, uh, discerning worship, people say like, well, that's not very buzzy. That's not very fun. I kind of want something with a little bit more whiz bang to it, you know? We're chasing our tail. It's not paying attention. All throughout Scripture, when people encounter God, they are struck dumb. Silence is the pathway to paying attention. Learn to listen for the Master's voice. Spirituality is not a gimmick, it's not buzzy. Jesus is not a musician, God is not a vending machine. Spirituality is not about a buzz. Jesus goes to the cross. Do you remember do you remember this image maybe growing up? It's called the Master's Voice. It's called the Master's Voice and in 1899 it was painted by a man who sold it to RCA. And RCA said, "Well, it's a great painting if you'll just put our uh, Victrola in there, then we'll buy the painting from you." <laughs> so he did. It's said that dogs are so loyal, so attentive, that they will wait by the door for their master to come home even long after their master is dead and gone. They listen for the master's voice. They pay attention. Love pays attention. This is what we're after in our spirituality. This is how to become a holy person. This is how your weakness is your pathway to Jesus. How can we arrange our lives this fall to pay attention? Well, perhaps it all begins with silence. Turn off the car radio. During baby nap time, don't get things done. Instead, rather get a cup of coffee and sit and watch the outdoors. I'm embarrassed day in and day out because I have a bird feeder in my backyard. It's kind of goofy. I always feel kind of embarrassed because men aren't supposed to have bird feeders, I guess. I don't know. I heard that somewhere probably. But I fill it up every day. And every time I fill it up, and a few minutes later, all the sparrows come, and the Scripture comes into my head as I watch the sparrows hopping all over the ground in the bird feeder, and the Scripture comes into my mind. Consider the lilies of the field. Look at them. They don't worry, and they're they're dressed more finely than Solomon. Look at the birds of the air. Do they worry? Do they care? Are you not worth more than sparrows? comes a spiritual lesson from a bird feeder. Slow down this fall, everyone. The passion of Paul is a passion for sitting at the feet of Jesus. Hunters, when you go out this fall, you know what to do. Think hard, consider well about the silence of the sunrise. Others need to set a retreat date. Others need to take an hour on Saturday or Sunday and journal. Pour out your heart to God through the end of a ballpoint pen. I'm not much of a journaler myself, but I have learned the discipline over the years that my brain is moving 90 miles an hour, and if I can slow myself down with a pen into a journal and just simply write this, Dear God, I have no idea about what I'm supposed to be writing. I still don't. But I'm thinking about things. And now I realize, and soon you're off to the races and you're journaling. Just keep the pen moving. That's the secret to journaling. When do we take the time to do that in our busy lives? Is it making us closer to Jesus, our busyness? I don't think so. It's time for us to come to the table, so if the servers would come forward. And I would ask this, I propose this to you. When you come forward and tear off a piece of the bread and dip it in the chalice and eat it right there, I propose that you come thinking, make me a passionate person. Make me a passionate person, and your passion should be silence. Lord, help me to develop the discipline and the habit to rearrange my life, to slow down. Listen to these words, and see if you don't hear this great descent of God coming down and becoming nothing on our behalf. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is a is new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. A broken body, blood. Those are our great symbols of the faith. That's our confession. That's our creed. A man hanging on a cross, conquering death. That's our way, everyone. That's who we belong to. That's our way through this world, not power, not perfection. Weakness is our strength. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. That's the passion of Paul. Would you stand with me, please, as we pray together the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, not reciting, but actual prayer? Join me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Save us from the time of trial. Deliver us from evil for the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours now and forever. Amen. And therefore, we proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, hallelujah, the gifts of God for the people of God. Each day, may Jesus Christ be as real to us as this food and drink. Come forward whenever you're ready. Tear off the piece pray and return to your seat. Well, we speak these words of Paul as we wrap this series up right out of Ephesians. More than we can imagine, everybody. More than we can imagine. Join me. Glory to God, whose power working in us can do infinitely more than we can ask or imagine. Glory to Him from generation to generation in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace.